Hello, and thank you for downloading The Tully Show. A very brief heads up, you can find a blog post with YouTube links to each and every one of the very Bruce Springsteen-esque songs you are about to hear Mark McGrath and I discussing on The Tully Show at my brand new Patreon page. There's lots of music-oriented content at that Patreon page in general. For example, I'm still doing recently released songs as a monthly feature, as you may know. I invented playing music on the radio, and I'm keeping that proud tradition alive over there. Lots of good stuff happening there. I'm doing probably on average two to three exclusive podcasts per week at my Patreon page. Check it out if you're so inclined. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, Your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, Give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 71 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the city of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and the host of Mark McGrath's 120, heard weekends on the 90s on 9 on Sirius XM. Hello and welcome back, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. Mike Tully, how you doing, my friend? I am doing very, very well. I know that we're fully beveraged up here. You've got your, you've got your permanent red solo cup, your hard shell. <laughs> it's the real deal. Yeah, and I think everybody who listens to me at all knows that I, I never show up for a broadcast without at least, like, five beverages. I'm the most hydrated man in podcasting, they call me. It's important. That's how you get that liquid gold in your voice. That's where that tone comes from. And, <laughs> and I'm starting to start drinking uh, carbonated water because I've been hitting the sodas hard, totally. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you get, as an old man, you know, you, I, it's a tremendous what the uh, amount of damage some soda can do to your organs. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm making the change. I'm right in the middle of a withdrawal from soda into carbonated water. Fun getting old. Yeah, you, you get there. Uh, do you have any voice regimen that you follow? Do you have a pre or post show prep or anything? Uh, I do a little shot of Jameson before I go out oh, there. Yes. That's my little thing. And look, at, we've talked about this before. Right. I don't have a – I'm not a singer. You know what I mean? I'm a guy with a tone, and it happens to be my speaking voice. So fortunately for me, no one's coming to hear me hit high Cs or do some vocal runs. So there isn't this need to really preserve – I mean, preserve, yes, but mm-hmm. to like sort of get it in shape for, for a show, not not so much. And. Yeah, you know, that I really we well, we'll mess around. We'll sing songs and we'll on acoustic and just get get the blood flowing. But there's not a uh, Sebastian Bach operatic, you know, run through I go through. Like you know, I, I heard the guy from uh, Buck Cherry, Josh Todd. Yeah, we did a uh, we did a show with them once, and he was in the next room going for like two hours, man. And he's serious about his vocal play. So yeah. I respect those who do it. I just don't do it. To me, he'll always be Josh Todd of Slamhound. Oh my God. I'm a dog. I'm a fucking dog. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that, that demo Slamhound's demo that got them signed to Atlantic records? The, are you talking about the single? Because I, I actually, the single. they were obviously funded by somebody. They had some sort of financial backing or somebody in the band was wealthy. Cause I started to feel bad. I was a kid who would call, all of the hair metal bands hotlines you know like faster pussycat for sure. example when when in the song mm-hmm. bathroom wall i dialed two eight one seven six six eight 
that was the Faster Pussycat hotline. You could just call it and they'd have, so great. And they'd have voicemails and tell you what they were up to and you could leave them a message. And I just kept calling the Slam Hound thing and every single time I'd be like, don't send me another single. I'm just calling you <laughs> because I'm 12 years old and I'm a loser. And every time I called, I would get another single in the... It, it, yeah, and I, I had a Slam Hound extra large t-shirt when i weighed about 86 pounds that i still wore and yeah the single for slam do you have that still do you still have that i don't think i have the t-shirt i guarantee you i still have a single somewhere there's two songs on it and both of them were about cocaine so good well i mean what what do you want in your heavy metal rock and roll (laughs) they had a great song um it was funny because slam hound got signed to atlantic records wait right when we did and i remember seeing slam hound and again we're talking about slam hound which became buck cherry's Josh Todd's, uh, Josh Todd's uh, band. We saw him with the whiskey with Amon Erdogan there. Yeah. So Slam Hound Huge record label flirted with, Legend. Yeah, yeah. So so I, I don't think they ever released a record on Atlantic, though, no. but they definitely formulated a demo, and they had a song on there called I Am A Dog. I'm a dog, I'm a fucking dog! And it was the greatest song. And it says, slip me a Mickey and I'll give you a hickey. I'll never forget that lyric in the verse. And I'm like, this is gold. This is gold. Then they came up with Lit Up as Buck Cherry. And I'm, I love the cocaine. I'm like, I, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's not, yeah. no, it's not, you know, it's not going to win a Nobel Peace Prize, but it definitely has its lane. You know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely had it lane. Now they had a song. I like both the songs a lot. They were actually pretty innovative because it's it's become this truism that hair metal had exhausted itself as a as a creative, you know, they'd explored all avenues creatively. And for the most part, that is true. But um, there were some bands that were still doing some new stuff, and Slamhound was was one of them. I, I, I really like both the songs, but Sugar Don't Knock on My Door, which was Don't Knock on My Door because <laughs> I'm in here doing cocaine. Which, in case you didn't know, was the tip off in the beginning. Was in the beginning, he goes, "Ah, cocaine." <laughs> And it was so rad that all those bands were finished. And we've talked about it a million times. I've talked about it with you a million times. I've talked about it with other guests on this show that nobody got in the door. If you weren't already in the door once grunge showed up, Buck Cherry is actually the weird example, uh, uh, exception to that, because they did a song that wasn't um, uh, covertly about cocaine. It was overtly about cocaine. And so they they got in. And stylistically, they were kind of a darkness before the darkness. I mean, yeah. Buck Cherry coming out in 97, 98, being ACDC? Yeah. Well, let's be honest. You know, I mean, they, he, Slam Hound just changed the aesthetic a little bit and named himself Buck Cherry, but it was still, you know, the cocaine songs. <laughs> and the irony of that whole thing, the irony of that whole thing, dude, he's been sober for 30 years, oh, yeah. you know? So that hasn't touched a drop, you know? But obviously still uh, really uh, occupies the recesses of that man's mind. Yeah. But, um and incredible songwriter. I, I, I've, I've heard some demos and, uh, from Josh and guys are very talented songwriter. Got a really cool voice, but he's a guy that warms his ass up all the time. But I think they were the darkness before the darkness was because they were the anomaly when they came out. No one was looking for that heavy metal cocaine song. And it was such, it was such a like, it was kind of a breath of fresh air then. Yeah. When because they slammed the door on hair metal. No more. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking at the ground, we're wearing flannel, and we hate everybody, right? And then they come out with this glorious song that was just straight out of the ACD riff playbook. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it went, went platinum for a reason. Yeah. You know, it was a breath of fresh air. There was that, and there was that weird English band Thunder. Remember, I don't want your dirty love. I don't want you touching me. I guess because that was like a, a novelty thing. And because he was a hair metal singer who weirdly sounded like Robert Palmer. 
they got that's right they got and, to get and the- therapy there's a band called therapy too the hair metal thing didn't close as hard in europe as it did here in the states yeah uh it, it's interesting you say a guy who was who's been sober who's the cocaine song guy meet and greets must be the absolute bane of josh todd's existence <laughs> Oh my god, <laughs> dude! You see, I, I tell you, because Smash Mouth, Smash Mouth, we toured with Smash Mouth in, in 97, 98, whatever it was. They go, dude, we're going on tour with that band that sings about cocaine next. We're so excited, you know. Smash Mouth might have part, they might have or might not have partaken allegedly back then. Who knows? Uh, right. So they were uh, at a truck stop uh, somewhere in California. They just played this festival and Buck Cherry was coming from somewhere. So they knew they were going to be touring with Buck Cherry next. And they saw a tour bus in a gas station like at three in the morning. And Smash Mouth is obviously still uh, you know, up and having fun and pouring into this gas station. Someone goes, whose tour bus is that? They go, it's Buck Cherry's. So Steve ran in there and was like, oh, I got the cocaine. I got the cocaine. And they, and they, all refused to open up their like their thing and the tour manager had to go dude they, these guys don't get down like that you know and so steve found out very quickly it was going to be a very different tour than what he anticipated i see he ended up balancing, balancing his chakras backstage with Josh yeah. Todd. <laughs> oh yeah doing the uh you know the yoga handstand with the you know the elbows out as a, as a kind of tripod balancer yeah, yeah. but 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 Josh Todd still looks great, man. I mean, guy looks like he's thirty years old. He's my age, man. Yep, you know? yep, 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 yep. I love those eternal hair metal frontmen guys. There's something glorious about the guys who flame out and look nothing like they used to. And then there's something about the him and the uh, Steve Whiteman from Kicks. From Kicks, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then obviously the Steve Perrys and so on and so forth. Um, but I did not bring you here again to talk about hair metal. Although it's it's fine. I, Darn, man. I know. Maybe we'll just start a splinter pod where we we just only talk about the week that Nirvana broke (laughs) forever because it really is an endless and how how heartbroken we are about that and we're never getting over it. So if you want to listen, listen. (laughs) I mean, as a guy who was just watching videos of a Tiger Tales reunion on YouTube like three days ago. That's why I love you. I actually want to talk to you about a completely different spectra, end of the musical spectrum. We'll talk about what I want to talk to you about in a second, but I, I saw a piece of news and it made me think of you because you're the music business guy. You're the only one that I really know. I don't know if you're aware, Bob Dylan sold his six-decade catalog of songs to the Universal Music Group. You're nodding your head. You know this deal could be worth somewhere between two and $300 million. Yep. Uh, a lot of people are doing... I'm oh, sorry, Tully, go ahead. No, that's the question. Why? What would be the motivation for doing this other than money? He's got plenty of money. Why would he do this? Well, I can't speak to him personally, but a lot of people are doing that right now. Stevie Nicks is doing it. Yes. Neil Young just sold half his catalog. I think some of these artists are coming towards a uh, realization of what they are going to make, what they aren't going to make. And, you know, I never count someone else's money. If someone's going to give you a $500, $400 million up front in a business where you don't really know where it's going, you, you know what I mean? We, we've talked about Spotify and streaming a lot. You and I have talked about the devaluation of music and, and, and where it's going. Uh, it's kind of evening itself out. I think we can kind of foresee where it's going to be. But Either these companies know something we don't know as the artists, because I'll let you know this comes closer to home than you know, because I've been offered to sell my my catalog, okay, my interest in my in my songwriting. So this and, and you know they throw some numbers at you that are pretty crazy. You know some of the 
Some of them are getting paid at like 18 to 20 year variables of what you would get. Meaning, you know, if you got say 50 grand a year, they're going to give you a million dollars for, uh, you know, that, that's a big, so if you do that, you know, if you do that sort of, uh, the 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 uh the disparity between getting 50 grand a year and a million dollars up front i mean that that's a big that's a big onus to sell so you know whether you're rich or not rich i mean looking at your catalog and going okay i'm i'm neil young i'm kind of you know i'm i'm coming to the end of a glorious uh, career and why not just cash it now uh when i can when my music's still valuable it might not be as valuable 10 years from now but these companies are taking a risk. They, yes. I think they know something we don't know. We don't know because my last quarter, for some reason, in terms of record royalties, was twice as high as my three quarters before that, and it made no sense why. So either these, there's four or five of these publishing companies that are bidding on everybody's all these artist catalogs. Mm. Um, so it's not like it's it's an, like the Neil Young things anomaly or the Bob Dylan things anomaly. There's like five or six companies that are all bidding on everybody's stuff. I'm talking about every artist you know is getting an offer for their catalog. Huh. So either they know something or there's a willingness to sell. It's a crazy time. Yeah, it seems like this is destined to be, and this is a very lukewarm take. Either it seems like this is destined to be a very very good deal for somebody. Either the music company, because as you're saying, they know something we don't know and they are buying low. There's not as much money to be made in music as people used to count on 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so these artists are getting out while the getting is good. And these guys will be laughing to the all the way to the bank because Bob Dylan stuff's got to be worth $100 million a year for the next 100 years. Or... A lot of heads will roll when music continues to be devalued because information wants to be free and music is ultimately just MP3 bits and it's it's information in and of itself the way people uh, transfer it and consume it and for all of the cultural value of Bob Dylan's catalog, the actual value of it is rapidly descending towards something next to zero unless you count you know T-shirt sales. Right, right, which obviously have no effect on the his songwriting. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, uh, but. But here's the thing, though, dude. Eventually, someone will get their money back for that Bob Dylan catalog. Whether it takes 30 years or five years, that is the question. I mean, music is not just going to be free. Mm-hmm. We've kind of reached the the, 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 the the bottom floor, the glass bottom of, of okay, this is how it can't, it can't be any cheaper than it already is on streaming services. So they've been able to sort of... Uh, you know, come up with a, an idea, a variable, how to pay an artist and what they think. Yes, there's a risk. Whether they get paid back in 12 years or 20 years, that 25 years, that's that's the risk they're assuming. Um, but it is seem to be something that is happening. Uh, and it's 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 uh, it's very strange because they either know something or don't know something. Um, but the music will always have value. It will never be free. It's just becoming cheaper, you know? So what I want to talk to you about today is a topic that we have touched on many times and a topic that from my vantage point has, um, generated more enthusiasm than I would have expected from listeners. We've by the by here and there talked about a guy who was initially signed to be the next Bob Dylan back in 1972 or so would have been when CBS was signing Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And uh, and by the way, that may sound a little silly now because Bruce has obviously carved out a very different niche musically and culturally from Bob Dylan. It was not so crazy at the time. I don't know how familiar you are with Bruce Springsteen's very early stuff on CBS. Well, 
I, I'm not I'm not a big Bruce Springsteen stan, uh -huh. but I understand his lyrical inspiration is very akin to what Bob Dylan is doing. You're describing life, you know. So you know what I'm saying? A, a very descriptive, uh, a, you know, uh, common man life lyrical philosophy. Let me play you a little clip of a song from the first Bruce Springsteen album, Greetings from Asbury okay. Park, New Jersey, called. Um, totally. Does, be, hmm? Before you before you do that, sorry, I, I want to go back to the 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 the. the and I'm sorry, people listening. Please. Before you play the Bruce Springsteen thing, uh, remember when Michael Jackson bought the Beatles catalog for $100 million oh, it's one of my in the 80s? One of my favorite stories ever that Paul McCartney was making money investing in music and him and Michael Jackson are making the Say, Say, Say or The Girl Is Mine music video and they're chatting in between takes and and uh, Paul McCartney mentions that he makes a lot of money owning uh, the Buddy Holly catalog, etc. And Michael Jackson goes, oh, no way, really? And then goes and buys <laughs> Paul McCartney's catalog. Yeah. Which he bought for, I think, 75 to $100 million at the time. Yeah. This is what, 85, 84? Yeah. It was an astronomical amount. People laughed at it. Yeah. That was the deal of a lifetime. Now, the Beatles catalog, I mean, it's, it's, it's priceless, you know? Yeah. So, and, and David Bowie sold his catalog in, in the early 90s for $40 million. Mm -hmm. Okay. So those people got all their money back and more. So these numbers sound astronomical now. Yeah. You know, you you, you got to think about buying a house and things like that. I'm sorry, but I, I was there was a, there was a point I wanted to button up, and that was it, and it was sticking in the in my mind, and now we're done. So hey, early Bruce Springsteen. This show used to be 51 minutes and 25 seconds, and now it's as long as we want it to be. So. <laughs> You, you, you see, you see a detour. You, you feel free to take the scenic route, my friend. Okay, so I just wanted to button that up because mm -hmm. you did say about how expensive it, it, they are, and they, they're definitely very expensive. But they will be paid back eventually. I think that's what I was trying to get to. But I was looking for my my example, but I got lost when I always talk to you, Tully, because I go on tangents. So All check right. out this little snippet from this song from 1973, Bruce Springsteen. Wizard imps and sweat sock pimps, interstellar mongrel mimps. I've heard live recordings of Bruce playing this acoustic where he he literally slips into a Dylan accent for those lines. What? You can hear it there. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I didn't even know he was saying that. Mm -hmm. And now that you tell me the lyrics, I mean, it it's so obviously uh, the Bob Dylan signee, you know? Uh, a, a couple years too late, though, because... Uh, much like um, Nirvana closed the door in heavy metal, a hair metal at least, um, the door was closed on that Bob Dylan folk singer thing. When, when, when Springsteen got signed, what, 72? The album came out in right? 73, so yeah. Yeah, we're starting to enter into the, you know, the, the heavy metal, Led Zeppelin, you know, uh, Black Sabbath. I mean, we didn't have there were folk singers. You know, you guys can go over here. And then Bruce figured that out and found his own brand of rock and roll. He know? did, and it took him either two or three albums, depending on how you want to look at it. Born to Run is the Hail Mary pass that saved his career. I love the story. I don't even know if it's exactly true, but it, this is, there's stories upon stories here with his management and lawsuits and stuff like that. But he had been this prized signee of CBS Records, and he was selling absolutely nothing, two albums in, and there was a lot of doubt as to whether or not he would even get a third album. So he goes off and records the song, not the album, Born to Run, and his manager leaks it to record labels, and it becomes such a thing that it buys him a new lease on life and indeed buys him his entire career. But that's how close Bruce Springsteen was to being some guy that only the most hardcore, folkish rock fans 
of all time have even have even heard of. Yeah. Um, but he does. He does. By the time, you know, obviously Born to Run does not sound a whole heck of a lot like uh, like Bob Dylan. Now, I would say that by the time he made Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen had developed his own inimitable sound. But it turns out that his his sound is incredibly imitable. Because <laughs> <Right>. we, <laughs> we have talked about this before, uh, uh, just how many people have made a living sounding not a little bit, but a whole heck of a lot like Bruce Springsteen. And since we've mentioned that here or there, uh, people have sent me a bunch of links. So I thought today we could talk about the people who have had success um, releasing stuff that it's one of those things like I think you can be Beatlesque without sounding exactly like the Beatles and you can be Stones-esque without sounding like the Stones but when people get a little Bruce in them it tends to be kind of kind of unmissable yeah and people are real proprietary they are they are about those other bands too but especially about Springsteen you know yeah. we, we have we have a band sort of aspect I think it's more likely to be I think you get more passes in terms of like trying to imitate. But when you have one guy, I mean, there's one Frank Sinatra, even though you had a Dean Martin and you had a Pat Boone, a couple of knockoffs. But, you know, if you started, but it took, it took years later for us to get a Michael Buble or a, uh, a Harry Connick Jr., you know, but there was not another Sinatra at the time. So I think when you have a, a solo artist like that, it's much, much more difficult to be completely influenced by a solo artist and try and exist on the same plane, certainly commercially as well. So just to, you've already touched on it, but just so we know where we stand, you've never been a, a Bruce guy. If you have a, I mean, I don't even know what music collections mean anymore. You used to say in your record collection, you, then you'd say on your iPod, in your Spotify, do you have a single Bruce Springsteen yes. song? Yes, I do. I, I like uh, One Step, One Step Forward, Two Steps Back, you know that song? Uh, I don't even know that song. What album is it's that It's on from? Tunnel of Love. Oh, okay. All it's right. a beautiful yep, yep. song. Um, I have Because the Night, you know, he did for Patti Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, because the Night belongs. And he's got a great version of that. So I, 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 I have no problem with Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. I'm not trying to go see a Bruce Springsteen show. You know what I mean? I respect him. I, I get it. But he doesn't speak to me. You know, yeah. I, 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 a surfing kid growing up in Newport Beach, yeah. I didn't get the Jersey, you know, Main Street, London, yeah. it just never spoke to me, you know? Well, yeah, if you're, if you're going to go- How about you? How about you? So if you're going to go to Bruce, you better pack a lunch because you're going to, you're going to be there for, <laughs> for a minute. I, I find his live shows very, very tedious because- Thank you. Every song, the, the intro gets, becomes five times as long. Every song, the guitar solo becomes three times as long. Every outro- Ends up with fucking Max Weinberg. Gah, doom, doom, gah, doom, 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 doom. One more, one more, yeah. one more, one more. Yeah. Yeah, come on, big dude. man, yeah. big man. Yeah, and yeah, and we get to <laughs> every song, bro. Every song, every single song, and we get to diminishing returns very, very quickly. Now, I got to Bruce, and we're going to talk about hair metal again, a very, very strange way. I, I'd never. I, I, I guess I thought it was cool that. He, he he was enjoying his second heyday when I was a little kid. And I grew up in Rutherford, New Jersey, right next to Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. And I didn't know a whole lot of people who would go see Bruce play live when he was at Giant Stadium for 10 nights in a row because I didn't know a whole lot of people who could necessarily get the tickets, either afford them or get their hands on them. I knew people who just went down and sat in the parking lot and listened to Bruce Springsteen shows. So, and, and, and I've always been sort of proud about New Jersey is not New York. It's not Los Angeles. It's not Paris. It's not a world capital, but we've got a guy who, and, and, and for that matter, you know, Sinatra too. Yeah. We've got these people. And Jovi, don't Jovi, Jersey Paisan, come on. 
and two, we will be, of course, speaking about <laughs> John Bon Jovi. Yeah, exactly. But even Bon Jovi, his second big album, he followed up his big album with an album called New Jersey. And it's always been kind of a point of pride for me that these guys weren't just from there, but represented that in the same way that, you know, Bob Seger is to Detroit, but on a, on a higher level than, than Seger, with all due respect, got to. But it never really was my favorite thing. I liked all pop music when I was a kid, but not especially Bruce. But there was a hair metal band, an unsigned hair metal band from the early 90s that I was a massive fan of called Champagne Suicide. Uh, and they recorded... Beautiful. <laughs> they recorded songs. Let me see. Their first demo had songs like Sex in the USA and I Smell Cindy. But the guy, because I was a super duper fan, I knew a guy in the band. I got his home four tracks. He made a home four track demo cover of Growing Up by Bruce Springsteen. Wow. That made me, that made me go get the first... Bruce Springsteen album. So I only really like Bruce because of Champagne Suicide. That's where I'm coming from. But the thing is, <laughs> it gets in you if you're from there, whether you like it or not, because years, years later, I was talking to my wife, the song My Hometown was on the radio or whatever the hell we were listening to. And I was, and my wife doesn't give a shit about Bruce Springsteen one way or the other. So I'm explaining the song to her. And I, I, I literally started to cry as I was explaining, I like he's on his dad's lap. And now, you know what I mean? So I'm like, okay, obviously I don't spend a whole lot of time listening to Bruce, but he's he's got me pretty good. He's in your DNA, dude. You know, and by, by the way, yeah, My Hometown's a beautiful song. I mean, he's crafting some beautiful song. song. He's also in that rarefied air up there with musicians like the Bob Dylans, uh, the Mick Jaggers, the Bonos of the world. I mean, the respect that man gets around the world is unbelievable. You know, so yeah. he, he, he's, 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 he's a superstar. He's a legend. And you have every right to be proud of the guy. He's proud of being from New Jersey. Why wouldn't New Jersey be proud of him? You know, and I, how ironic is it? There is a link from Bob Dylan to John Bon Jovi and Bob Dylan doesn't even know it. <laughs> no, I'm sure the name doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. No one told Bob Dylan. <laughs> I am happy and proud to be able to say that I recently, somewhat recently experienced the holy grail of being a new jersey citizen and like my birthright as a new jerseyan i no longer live in new jersey obviously but i was down there for a rare visit to the shore during the summer and i'll spare everybody the long story yet again but i saw bruce springsteen in one of his famed you know he drops in once or twice a summer in some club in, in asbury park if it's not the stone pony it's this other place and uh, I'll tell you the short version of the long story because it's so New Jersey. I fucking love it. I'm at a bar with my sister. It's called Bar A, Bar Anticipation uh -huh. is what it's called. It's a Jersey, Jersey, like capital J, capital S, Jersey Shore <laughs> kind of bar. And we're drinking there during the day in Belmar and some guy walks past and my sister's like, oh, that's our cousin. And I'm like, oh, I know our cousin. She's like, no, no, no. It's this guy's cousin's 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 cousin. That's our cousin. And sure enough, this guy is like John Tully or something. And he goes, oh, did you hear blah, blah, blah's playing at the, it, it wasn't, I forget, it's not the Stone Pony. It's the other big club down there. Is it the place down the street, the, down the street from the Stone Pony? It's got kind of like the Wonder Bar or something. It's, yes, it's, it's Wonder Bar. It's Wonder Bar. It's exactly right. Yeah. And and he goes, oh, so-and-so is playing at Wonder Bar. Uh, a guy told me Bruce is going to drop in. And I'm like, why? And he goes, well, Bruce produced his album, and that's why he's going to drop in. And I'm like, man, for every good rumor, there's a guy, literally, I'm not even making this up. It just goes to show you how generous Bruce is. The original drummer in the E Street Band, I think, Vinny Mad Dog Lopez, still tours with the band and Bruce gave him his blessing for him to play all the songs that they used to play before the first Bruce album. And half the reason why people will still go see this guy is because once every five years, Bruce still shows up and plays with this That's guy. Awesome, That's man. half the reason. Yeah, exactly. So 
He goes, yeah, no, Bruce produced this guy's album. He's going to show up at the show. I know a guy. <laughs> it's total Jersey. I know a guy. This, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. cousin. This cousin I've just met. And um, and I don't think anything else of it. And we're drinking all day. And later on that night, we're back in somebody's house in the backyard. And five people get text messages at the exact same time. Bruce is at Wonder Bar. And just because we'd gotten the heads up, we didn't fucking hesitate. And one guy, thank God, had not been drinking. So we got in the car and we went down there. And, I mean, people are dropping names. I know the police chief of one town over. Of and, and there's there's two doors. And somebody, some people in our party did manage to get inside. I got as far as the the window, which was like a, a waist-to-ceiling window. I saw Bruce. I heard a couple songs. I'll be honest with you. I got bored and left because yeah. I really wasn't all that interested in the music. It was just the point of I've been hearing about this since I was a kid. For all the people who, who really saw Bruce show up at some club in Asbury Park, there's five people who will lie to you and <laughs> yeah. tell you they've seen Bruce show up at a club. That's exciting, man. That's like that's seeing that's like seeing Bigfoot. You know what I mean? In New Jersey. I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly what it's like. It's huge. And, and, and then to make it real, you know, so you've seen it. It's funny you mentioned the Wonder Bar because I'm like, I, I heard places. It's a real dump. The Wonder Bar. I mean, with all due respect, it's it's not a dump. It's, it's, it's with all due respect, it's, sure. it's a lovable, lovable dive. Let's say. So I'd always go like, "There's no yeah. way he'd show up at that place." And now you're telling me he, he does because people. We used to play the Stone Pony once a year in the parking lot with my touring uh, '90s review variety act and uh, puppet show. Um, <laughs> and the Stone Pony, you know, you know, you get you walk around that area and people are like, "Hey, um, you know, every now and then Bruce plays the Wonder Bar." And I go, oh, "Really?" And I didn't believe it. Now you mentioned it. That's yeah. why I brought it up. I go, "Is it the Wonder Bar?" You go, "Yes." So there you go. Well, it is a Bigfoot sighting, and you saw. And you've confirmed a big part of what I'm telling you when when you repeat that random people <laughs> passing you on the street in New Jersey, no doubt meatball parm sandwich in hand, are telling you. Yes. You yes. Know, you know Bruce plays I mean, across the street. And you know, dude, when you're down there, you, it's so, it just doesn't feel like a place one of the biggest rock stars in the world would ever just come by and, and, and swing in. You, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, it's hard to explain. Um, it feels like a, a, a place where history was, not the future is, you know? Uh, and, and so for him to like go down there and sort of visit the old haunts and, and, and make Asbury Park special and make New Jersey special and Stone Pony and the Wonder Bar special. That's what he's still doing. Yeah, that's it. And I think that's it's probably a, a testament to why he does the four hour shows. He still cares about the fans, still cares about anybody in the Bruce Springsteen sphere. I mean, it's, it's a, that's a testament to the man. He doesn't have to do it. He doesn't. I don't know that he's ever left the area. If he did, he returned a long time ago. He obviously spent time in in New York. Um, Max Weinberg. I met him one time at a show, and he was telling me that the 10th Avenue of the 10th Avenue freeze out fame from the third album was a reference to where the, the prostitutes hung out in New York. So they obviously mm -hmm. spent time in the city, but yeah, he's never gone LA. He's never, you know, I, I don't know how much time Bono still spends in Dublin and Dublin is still a far more international city than, uh, than, uh, Asbury park, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, they, U2 still does a lot in Dublin. Though. They have that hotel there in yeah. Dublin, and then you know, there's there's a huge presence of U2 when you physically go there. Yeah. But I think Bruce might have had a little when he married Mimi Rogers. Remember in the '80s, he married yeah. the actress. Sure. Uh, me. I think he had a little bit of flirtation with LA because she was acting out here. So mm -hmm. he certainly spent some time here. Yeah. Whether he technically owned a property here, that might be up for some uh, historical discussion. Yeah. But that 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 when he got divorced from Mimi Rogers, that led to the Tunnel of Love record. Mm -hmm. One step forward, two steps back. 
Black song I'm talking about. That's right. Know? And that's how uh, he ended so. up with his backup singer with whom he is still Patty married Schiaffo. today. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could Indeed. I could I could go on about Bruce, but instead let's go on about all the people who want to be Bruce Springsteen. The yes. this conversation needs to start with a guy. I don't even know if people outside of New Jersey are familiar with a performer named Southside Johnny. Yeah, I mean Okay, so yeah, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, I'm still not really clear on the story, and I did some research for this. If he wasn't around before Bruce, they were coming up around the same time. Now, Bruce was was in a couple bands and was gigging around New Jersey for a while. He did not just pick up a guitar and get a record deal three months later by any stretch. So this guy, he came after Bruce in terms of releasing music on a national scale, but he did not start making music. He, you know, he's not he's not imitating Bruce. They both participated in what is known as the the New Jersey sound. But I gather Southside Johnny maybe was more of a charismatic performer than he was a really high level songwriter because by the time stuff was coming out on major labels, um, Little Steven and Bruce Springsteen, I think, were collaborating with him on the actual material, which I guess unsurprisingly sounds like stuff that got left off of Bruce Springsteen albums. Yeah, I, I think Southside Johnny had a definitely a little bit of a national presence. I remember seeing him touring all through here during the 80s and the 90s. I also remember him like saying, this is my last tour. And I think he was like, he was, he was pretty young. I think he was like 40 years old for, to, to really be wrapping it up, you know? Uh, so maybe he did those long marathon shows as well as Bruce. I'm not really deep into the Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes catalog. I know there is a huge yeah. simpatico between Bruce Springsteen and Southside Johnny. Yeah. But I, I, I was I thought maybe Southside Johnny was in the band for for a moment, but 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 you did more research than I do on this. So that was that's my sort of foggy recollection of uh Southside Johnny. I know he has one song that people yeah. like. And I think this is the one here. You're making me think I would never want to go to like a Jersey Shore music festival at wonder bar because if everybody's going to be up there doing <laughs> doing five hour shows of 12 minute long songs like we could be here for a while so this is i think this is Southside johnny's signature tune i believe it was written i, th I think maybe the sole writing credit if not the primary writing credit belongs to little steven miami steve steven van zandt it's called i don't want to go home see if you can hear a bit of bruce springsteen influence in this It goes on like that. I mean, it's so on the nose that there was no lane for him. Yeah. You know, it just sounds like Bruce Springsteen. He didn't have a chance. And it goes back to the chicken or the egg story. I mean, I don't know who came first. I really don't care. I mean, but I think if Southside Johnny had great songs, he, he could have been bigger. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? I don't think him sounding like Bruce Springsteen was the reason why he didn't become Bruce Springsteen. Do you? Uh, I don't. No, about that. I think if they were going to sound that similar, there could only be one. And if one guy was the guy who was actually writing the songs, that was how that was kind of bound to turn out. In doing some research for this, I read about a guy named like Bill Chinock, who's supposedly legendarily, well, don't say that all these guys sound like Bruce. Bruce sounds like this other guy who was playing in, Jer in Jersey before any of them. And that guy I could hear more of um, being a an influence 
an antecedent. Right. But after Bruce, there's all these bands, which and we'll have we have a, a whole list of them here where it's 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 they don't belong to a shared um, school. They're just sort of sort of clone bands. And I've always found it interesting when bands um, some bands are obviously turned off understandably when a new act shows up that's mimicking them but some other bands embrace that and like i always found it strange that uh you might think panic at the disco have taken on um you know uh, an identity of their own over the years but to me when they showed up they were another fallout boy and they were on fallout boys record label and i can only understand that as well maybe it was narcissism of boy, these guys are great. Isn't this an amazing sound they've got? <laughs> because yeah, they sound like you. Or maybe it's if somebody's going to make money off of these clowns sounding exactly like me, it's going to be me. I don't know. Right. I mean, I think it goes directly to your pockets. You know, people think you're you're, you're taking money out of their pockets. You're taking food off their table when you're yeah you know, you're copying their sound. But you know, but there's a couple ways to look at it when you're you're, you're sort of building a uh, you, you know you're building a scene. Which what was it? What's the name of their top ramen? Was that the name of the the record company with? Fueled, fueled by ramen. Fueled by ramen. Fueled by ramen. So, um, was was there a problem with Fallout Boy and Panic at the Disco? Was there like I know Panic at the Disco is from Vegas, Fallout Boy is from Chicago. Was there some sort of thing where you know we're we're uh, fueled by ramen's guys, but then they went you know like the labels want to do sign more acts, they went and signed Panic at the Disco. And was there a tension there? Uh, tell it no, that I don't know no, about. I'm led to believe that they fully backed them and may have made appearances on their first album. No, no, no. And and that's the case with Bruce Springsteen. As far as I can tell, Bruce Springsteen has had a really good relationship with everybody who sounds exactly like him. I, I can I can I will provide. Like, like, well, I, well, I, I'm sure you're going to play him next or soon. John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll so, get you know, to John. John John Cafferty had great songs mm-hmm. on the dark side. On the dog side. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's right on. So, he he's making my point. There there was there was lanes if you had great songs. Do we agree? Bruce Springsteen is an amazing songwriter, whether you like the songs or not. Right. Of course. Of course. Right. I I think John Caffrey wrote a great song, but I don't know if he was a great songwriter. You know, there's a difference, man. There's levels to this shit. Yes, and I, I'm under the impression, so for people who don't know, John Cafferty is this guy, he's from New England, I think, and him and the Beaver Brown band start touring around, and they're going down all the way to the Jersey Shore, and people aren't, you know, they don't care that it just sounds like Bruce, this is great, if Bruce can't be here, we've got John Cafferty instead, and I think he had trouble getting traction in his career, because the label said, we don't need, we've already got Southside Johnny one too many. <laughs> And this what, Bill Chinook guy. What, <laughs> Bill Chinook's still digging around, and, and little Steven wants to go solo, and right. what the hell do we need these guys for? And it will, look, look, before we even get to On the Dark Side, which was they were hired to make Bruce Springsteen songs, essentially, for we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. This is the the raw clay that the, the people who made the Eddie and the Cruisers movie had to work with. This is um, from the very first, I think, self-released single that the Beaver Brown Band put out in 1980. So this is this is what they were doing um, right out of the gate. It's a very Did nice I hear song. Rosemary? Did I hear Rosemary in there? <laughs> what, Rosalita? Did I hear? 
yeah, I heard Rosemary or something. <laughs> hey, you, you, you brought up something kind of very interesting to me, and I, I just made a connection with all these artists. Mm-hmm. There was sort of a a chitlin circuit, for lack of a better title, of these Bruce Springsteen-sounding S artists going up the New England seaboard. Yeah. From New England all the way down to probably Asbury Park, probably as far as they took it, New Jersey. Mark, Mark probably, right? maybe, maybe, probably wherever the boardwalk ended. I'm not even joking. Well, I mean, that's probably a song written by Southside Johnny. Several so, of them. So there was an aesthetic, a scene happening there mm-hmm. that I, I pose a question to you. Yeah. Has any other artist that... Di- that sounds like Bruce Springsteen not been a part of that touring circuit, that, that touring circuit of the, like John Cafferty, Southside Johnny, Bill Chinook, Bruce Mm -hmm. Springsteen. Did you, you know, is there anybody that came from England or that you did? It sounds like there was a scene happening Mm -hmm. and obviously Bruce was the one to sort of, you know, peacock his way out of the scene, but there's a lot of people left in the dust that were kind of influencing each other. We might be giving Bruce, too much of the crown as opposed to it being built by a sound and an aesthetic that was a part of that early seventies, you know, drive your van up and down uh, the Eastern seaboard there. Okay. I get that except for the fact that the ones, and, and, and I don't know exactly what I'm talking about. There's people who argue on Reddit pages who know far about more about this than I do. The people who introduced me yesterday to this Bill Chinook guy. And I hope I'm saying his name right. All of the ones that come before Bruce to my ears sound similar to Bruce. All the ones that come after Bruce are exact Bruce Springsteen clones. If Bruce Springsteen at some point announced, I am just going to start playing on the dark side at my concerts and I will not pay anybody a fucking dime for it, deal with it. And I will not give any credit to anybody or <laughs> yeah. tell what this song yeah. is or where that, it came from or that's the provenance yeah. of it. Exactly. And if I feel like throwing in like a rock, deal with it. <laughs> you know what, though? I think you're right. Because you know when a comedian cracks the code of how to yeah. do an impression? Yeah. Bruce Springsteen cracked the code out of that whole Eastern Seaboard, early 70s, jam band, saxophone thing. Mm-hmm. He cracked the code on how to make a commercial. I think that's the difference. Yes, there were a lot of people doing it. Bill Chinook and his friends, everybody was doing it. But Bruce Springsteen cracked the code how to make it commercially successful. And that's why he wins. Yeah, I guess that's got to be the case. So when you when you talk about like where this stuff came from, there's certain elements that um, are, are are not original that he he's clearly um, showing his own influences. The, uh, you know, Born to Run has a huge Phil Spector, you know, wall of sound, be my baby thing to it. Another person who's maybe a little bit less obvious, but Bruce would definitely um, cop to, and so would most probably of these other bands that we're talking about is, um, is Benny King. Who, Benny King. Who literally has a song under the boardwalk. Sure. So right. let, me, let me play you a tiny little bit. I mean, everybody knows this song, but just where is this stuff coming from? Here's probably the second most famous Benny King song. Okay, which is, I mean, it's a great song, and Bruce definitely loves the, the shit out of Benny King. Maybe you listen to that and you go, yeah, I mean, I get it if you say so. It, it, it's not so obvious until you, here's another song 
that was recorded by another artist in 1980. I, I honestly thought that it was like a sort of unknown artist that had written and initially recorded this song. It turns out it's a massive artist who recorded this song. This song is identified very strongly with Bruce Springsteen. He has performed it live for years. I'm pretty sure it was on that triple live 75 yeah. 85 thing this is this is like a it, this is a classic bruce springsteen song but it is a cover of tom waits mm-hmm. this one right here and this is where i think when you go oh the benny king thing i can hear how they were all tapping into that It's pretty crazy that Tom Waits is the guy who actually coined down the shore, everything's all right, I'm in love with a Jersey girl, say sha-la-la-la-la-la. The Bruciest of all Bruce songs is written by right. is written by Tom Waits. Well, it's interesting because Bruce has always had his ear to the streets. I mean, one of his favorite songwriters is Mike Ness of Social Distortion. So he's always appreciated. Mike, Mike has jammed with him many times. You yep. can Google it on, you can YouTube it many times. Uh, uh, in fact, he played the Stone Pony with Social D and all that. He, he stopped in and joined them. Uh, so he's always had his ear to the street. If anything's authentic and real, Bruce is very attracted to it. And who's real and more authentic than Tom Waits, you yeah. know? Uh, and Mike Nest, you can put in that category too. Though he spawned a legion of an aesthetic of social, of Southern California lookalikes. Mike Nest was the original tattooed sleeve, combed hair back, you know, oh gee, I'm making fun of myself right now, but you, you know what I'm saying? It's like, but, but he, but he, so, uh, he's always respected, uh, originality, uh, even though he had to go find it in Tom Waits making it the most Bruce Springsteen song of all time, which is so interesting. And then the Benny King, is Benny King from New York or is he from New Jersey? Let's see. That's a good question. Uh, I would guess he is from New York. Spanish Harlem, of course, is, uh, is, is in New York. He is born in North Carolina. He died in Hackensack, New Jersey. So there's there's your Jersey presence, dude. Who knows how long he lived there or didn't live there? Maybe he came up to North Carolina to, to play that circuit we're talking about. Yes, Benny King is is a little earlier than uh, Springsteen, obviously. Yeah. But look at the profound effect on the phrasing, the vocal tones. Um, you know, one thing Bruce Springsteen has a lot better than I give him credit for listening to some of these things. His voice. Mm-hmm. His voice is an amazing. He's got an amazing voice. His vibrato's there. His tone. He can go low, he can go high, and he's got a very incredible voice that I, I haven't really never given credit for. And, I mean, okay, so everybody makes the joke about the five-hour shows and everybody claims to have been to, everybody claims to, in New Jersey to have been to to see Bruce at the Asbury, on some stage in Asbury Park or ran into him at a strip club or something, and everybody claims to have been to a Bruce concert that was five-plus hours. In reality, the E Street Band had never played a five-hour concert until about two years ago when they finally did it. And I guarantee you Bruce's voice sounded more or less fine by the end. And he's, they're talking right. about, we're talking about, I don't care how much HGH is involved. We're talking about like a 70 year old man. You know, it's incredible. And I don't care. I mean, you're still got to throw in all the aspects of traveling, which wipes people out and touring. I mean, the fact he puts on those shows is incredible. You know, yep. it's really incredible. 
So we mentioned the John Cafferty and the movie thing. We need to to address that. There's this movie. I don't know if I ever saw Eddie and the Cruisers. Oh, dude! <laughs> now you got something to do. You got something to do tonight. Well, oh my exciting. God! It's it is it's 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 so Jersey, so cheesy, perfect. It's Point Break meets uh, meets Roadhouse at, in New Jersey. You know, it's beautiful. I was led to believe that the plot more or less rehashes the story of like. The Doors, but the Jim Morrison legend transposed onto an obvious, obvious Bruce Springsteen stand-in. So this is the break of all breaks for John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band. They're hanging around, not getting any traction, being a Bruce Springsteen clone, and then somebody in Hollywood goes, I want to make a movie about Bruce Springsteen, but it can't actually be Bruce Springsteen, and we can't actually have the songs. Can somebody write a decent knockoff Bruce Springsteen song? And yeah, John Cafferty could. <laughs> and Bill Chinook didn't answer the phone. So. <laughs> exactly. And then you end up with this, which was... I, I, when I was a child, I think I probably believed that this was a Bruce Springsteen song. And who can blame me? I think many people do. And this song was a, a, a top 10 hit in its own right. I think this song went to number nine, many will recall, On the Dark Side by Eddie and the Cruisers, a.k.a. John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. if Bruce Springsteen ever showed up on stage with them because as I said he does he seems flattered by people who sound like him and a couple of the bands we're going to get into at the end of this conversation he embraced there's this song where you go boy that sounds quite a bit like Bruce Springsteen and sure enough you google it and it auto completes to that band and the name of the song and Bruce Springsteen because at some point he showed up on stage and performed it with him I don't I, I, I I'm led to believe that when people told John Cafferty boy you sound like Bruce he went thank you and when people said to Bruce, boy, that guy sounds like you, Bruce said, yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> and so I don't think there's any animosity there. No, there is no East Coast, West Coast beef amongst that Eastern Seaboard, Bruce yeah. Springsteen, Bill Chinook uh, soundalikes. You know, uh, I think Bruce is a very mag magnanimous person. You know, I, I, that's what I'm getting from him. Um, I don't know if I, I, I'd, I'd be curious. You know, John, I, I, I've done a few shows with uh, John Caffrey, believe it or not. Okay. And He's a, he's a lovely guy. He's about 74 years old. Sure. So, I mean, if you do the numbers, how old's Bruce right now? 72, 73? So, John Cafferty's older than Bruce Springsteen, mm. is my point. Yeah. So, yes, they wanted their, you know, they, they, they wanted a guy to sound like Bruce Springsteen, but John Caffrey was always already sounding like Bruce Springsteen, is my point. You know, they had the saxophone player that did the thing, and they, they had the interaction with the bands, and they, you know, and the, and the whole, you know, the whole really plain workman aesthetic. You know, there were no rock stars. Where the guy, I'm a lunch pail guy, I'm getting off work, I'm just like you. You know, they didn't play dress up. You know, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't wear glam shoes. You know, there was that real sort of uh, paint by numbers way to be a Bruce Springsteen clone, if you will. But again, we're getting a chicken and egg thing. I don't know if John Caffrey came before Bruce Springer or not. Because well, he's 70. He's, I think yeah. he, how old is Bruce? Do, do you have? Can we confirm that? I, I can look that up. Well, so yeah, the the, the workman like thing was true for the East Street Bing band for a long time. Obviously, at some point, Little Steven started wearing somebody's grandma's curtains. Shimada. <laughs> <laughs> 
and still doing that to this day. Yeah. By the way, Lil Steven, that's one guy I would never want to play in music trivia. He's a genius, man. He, he knows so much. Man. He's unbelievable. Bruce Springsteen is, uh, he turned 71 in September. Meanwhile, John Cafferty, who did not start releasing music until seven years after Bruce Springsteen did, it must be pointed out, uh, he is, he does not seem to have uh, his own Wikipedia entry. Well, he doesn't have his own Wikipedia page? That's Crazy. a shame. We have to write that wrong, my friend. John Cafferty, since 1972 to the present. So whether he released a, uh, something or not, yeah. he was active in 1972 with, with, with the Beaver Brown Band. Yeah. You know, So I, I wouldn't go by when they were the releases. This is the chicken and egg thing again. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, but, but that song, man, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's and that, that movie came out in 84, 85, right? It might have been a tiny bit, uh, 83. 83, okay. So, not, so, uh, so I guess uh, Born in the USA hadn't come out yet, because that came out in 84. 84, that's right. That's right. So, so now we got a whole other wrench in the plan, you know, because like that song was huge and arguably a bigger song than had Bruce broken through. I guess he broken through then, but he oh, became yeah. international with that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what had happened more than anything was that Bruce was tied up in this lawsuit with his lawyer and there was famously his it's apple or appell mike apple i'm gonna call him there was a famous mike apple clause put into music contracts following the bruce uh lawsuits because um this apple guy owned so much of bruce that they had to kind of fix things so people couldn't have those sorts of contracts it's a very 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 complicated story there's no um total villain there but bruce had a a a layoff from releasing stuff that's why the river was a double album because because he was sitting on stuff Uh. for a while while he was in in court and then uh, darkness on the edge of town but around 80 he does nebraska and there isn't the bruce that everybody has sort of known and loved so i think that is when there's an opening for john cafferty to be like it, to me that's what muse the band muse was when they first came out of madonna's um maverick record label is i liked the first two i'm the guy who liked the first two radiohead albums and then they keep on going more and more to the right with okay computer and muse show up and go well if if you guys don't want to be radiohead anymore then we will be radio yep. and then muse developed into their own thing as well but that's what muse were when they showed up they were um uh, the bends they're, well, they're the, kind of br- they're the bends they were, they were they were like a brit pop band when they first came out i remember muse you know i mean obviously they're from england but i i remember guile series signed him at maverick you know and uh i i had a casual eye on them nothing nothing too incredible and then they left Maverick and became one of the biggest bands in the world. You know, so it's m- funny. I wonder. I wonder how many bands left their lane and how many bands came in there and took their lane and had commercial success. Like Radiohead said, "We're done being Radiohead," and then Muse came in. You know, uh, Bruce Springsteen said, "I'm done being Bruce Springsteen for a while. I'm going to make Nebraska." And John Cafferty came in. It's a pretty interesting uh, topic. You know. Yeah, exactly. If you evolve more than the market wants you to, somebody. You know, the the song uh, the. Uh, Rock Superstar by Cypress Hill, I think, has Everlast talking in the beginning, and it breaks down in very plain, direct language how this works. People will show up, and they'll do your thing, and they'll do a variation on your thing, and, and you've got to hold on to your thing, or else it won't be your thing for very long. It, it's very true. It's yeah. very true. Right. So we've been talking about a bunch of bands that are from New Jersey. This next one that I want to share with you, a listener, um, a wolf knife from the Jason Ellis Show who goes by the name of Butt Package, shared this with me. <laughs> 
I don't have time code on this. So let me just play it from the start. Maybe it's just what it is from the start. Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead has any number of side projects. I know I've personally been priv privileged to see Rat Dog performing live in person somewhere in New Jersey at a festival uh, following Hot Tuna on stage. But wow. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I, stopped, <laughs> and I had stopped smoking weed at this point. So, <laughs> What's the painful? <laughs> but one of his other side projects is called Bobby in the Midnights. And this is a song released by a member, uh, one of the core guys of the Grateful Dead in 1981. huh some guy from the dead um that's johnny and the midnighters bobby bobby and the midnights bobby and the midnights well i you know what bob weir got tired of not having top 10 hits in the grateful <laughs> dead and this is before touch of gray came along yeah and he said wow tom petty's here and uh and and uh, bruce springsteen's here let's see what i can i mean so you never mind a man is them and them and that's what he just did yeah. that's what i would do if i was making a fake tom petty bruce springsteen. right I know. I would love to have um, a musicologist. Like some people want to have a lawyer on on call on retainer. I would love to have a musicologist because I remember, li I remember <laughs> listening to a thing with Qu with uh, Quincy Jones one time where he I don't remember what the fuck he's talking about, but he's like, well, yeah, if you're doing a blah 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 thing, well, now we're gonna play this chord. But if you want to make it sound more like you know Prince, well, now we're gonna throw in this note, and you go, oh my god, you just made a Prince chord because it's not. It music sounds like magic, but it's not magic in the slightest. It's this note or that note. It's the minor fourth instead of the major sixth or whatever. And there clearly right. are a couple of signature Bruce Springsteen things that he was pretty much the first guy there. And if you do them, there's no way around it. You now sound like Bruce Springsteen because it. We're, and again, these without, are these aren't things that sound a little bit like Bruce. These are Bruce songs, without a doubt. And you know, there's only twelve notes. Yeah. It's how you wrap them, as you said. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, that especially you got to be weary of the time frame. 81, Bob Weir decides to do that. You know what I mean? That's that's right in that that sweet spot of Tom Petty uh, and Springsteen. Uh, when Springsteen got tired of being Springsteen for a little bit, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, it's very strange when we're talking about aping people's styles and, and, and being on the nose with styles uh, like uh, uh, going back to John Cafferty was. Uh, with on the dark side and is on the dark side. Uh, Robin Thicke got sued by the Marvin Gaye estate for blurred lines mm -hmm. with, with Pharrell, right? Yeah. Now, they got sued because it sounded like. Yeah. And they won. Yes. The estate won. It's getting back to the Bruce Springsteen thing. He obviously either championed it or like, because like, why couldn't Bruce Springsteen sue John Cafferty for on the dark? I mean, it didn't really this kind of litigation didn't exist didn't really exist then. Yeah. I mean, it really became clear with samples when samples started taking a hold, and then then people got real proprietary with their stuff. But uh, boy, it seems like you could Bruce Springsteen could have sued John, but Bruce Springsteen had a better case suing John Cafferty than than Marvin Gaye Estate did suing. Uh, uh, Robin Thicke and uh, Pharrell on I, Blurred Lines. I think, I think I know the answer to, to this question. 
I believe there was a landmark case where some corporation, some thing, and, uh, approached Tom Waits about a song for a commercial, and he declined because that's not Tom Waits' style, and shortly thereafter heard a commercial on TV where somebody, it any anybody would assume it was Tom Waits, but it wasn't. They'd hired an imitator, and because he had that paper trail, he successfully sued them, not for stealing a song, but for stealing a sound a likeness yeah exactly a likeness, right and and we've also discussed on this show I, I forget how it played out exactly but the um the the huey lewis and then the ray parker jr ghostbusters theme again yeah. huey had been approached for that and declined so he could obviously prove intent in a way that is is typically hard to prove i uh enya is another person who has such a distinct thing and you'll watch movies and somebody not so much anymore but like the entire uh, uh, Titanic score. People remember the Celine Dion song. The score. It's it's Enya. It's just not. You're so it's right. It's just not Enya. And there's God knows how many millions of dollars in that. And I don't know that. I mean, Sherry, oh. li- Sherry lives in a castle, so I don't know that she. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not to- worried about her financials. Yeah, she's okay. <laughs> but but that. Yeah. Is a serious thing, not just oh, yeah. You know, some people just overlook things; so it's not worth the hassle. Yeah. I mean, there's probably two hundred million dollars waiting for her there. But but when you said something pretty important, there was a legal paper trail to Tom Waits thing. If mm-hmm. Tom Waits had just heard that and there was no legal trail, yeah, it's probably they never reached out to Tom Waits, but they wanted Tom Waits. Would there have been a case? It's probably a different story. It's probably yeah, probably not. Who knows? But I said, then we're getting back to the thing where like. Look now, I mean, I, I think I think the Marvin Gaye estate sued Ed Sheeran too for his uh, "Honey Up You" because it sounded too much like "Let's Get It On." No, I know they did because they, yeah. they got that first victory. Let's keep going. I don't know if it's been resolved yet, but uh, interesting, interesting how that works. So the next guy on the list, we're still in 1982 here. I don't know that we're going to be able to do all these because I've got songs going up to 2016. But um, yeah, we might have to do a part D. But uh, <laughs> what? What, if anything, do you know about Gary U.S. Bonds? I know uh, he uh, comes from the uh, Benny King style. He, he, he had a huge hit with uh, he, had, he he did a version of Double the Blue Dress, right? But he had uh, what, what's his big song, Gary U.S. Bonds? Um, Let's see. He had one giant hit. It's, it's people at home are losing their minds right now. Uh, Gary's I, I, in this case, I'm not so sure about that. Let me see. His classic no, I think hits, they are. New Orleans and Quarter to Three? Nah, he had a bigger song than that. But anyway, he, he's from he's from the uh, Benny King school because he was a little older mm-hmm. than uh, Bruce, I I'm, I'm think. He's, quarter, he's still quarter, alive. He's 81 years old. Yeah, Quarter to Three appears on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 Songs That Shape Rock and Roll. I don't know. It's a name that I have known, and it's not a name that I associate with any particular song, but I think his career had fallen on hard times, and maybe just because he had been an influence and a hero to Bruce Springsteen, Bruce, and again, Steve Van Zant got involved with um, Gary U.S. Bonds making some new music in the early 80s, and once again, they gave him <laughs> Bruce Springsteen songs to perform in the style of Bruce Springsteen. This is a song that was, uh, if not a top 10, at least a top 20 hit for Gary U.S. Bonds and I think, 1983.
It is amazing how prolific Bruce Springsteen is. I think, especially in those days, you could give him five minutes and he could give you yes. a song. Did you know that he wrote a song for Donna Summer that charted as well? Oh, yeah, he wrote lots of songs. Yeah, 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 yeah no, a, a ton of songs. I mean, I, he, he, he's, like you said, he, I think he, it just writing songs comes so naturally to him. Yeah. It's what he does. He, he's got his thing so down in terms of arrangements. I always say this. It's, it's not that hard to write a good song. It's hard to write a hit song. Agreed. I mean, there's, you can write listenable songs, but to, to have that magic, and Bruce figured out, we're going back to what I said earlier, he, he, he cracked the code. Like when an impressionist cracks the code, how to do somebody, he cracked the code, how to write a Bruce Springsteen song. Or, or I should say this, he cracked the code, how to write a song of that era and of that style that would be successful. Even though there was a John Caffrey out there, even though there was a Bill Chinook out there, even though there was a Southside Johnny out there, uh, Bruce Springsteen was talented enough to crack the code and how to make it palatable and commercial and that's what he did and he just and that song got to number 21 and it's something that probably took him five seconds to do yeah literally may have written it in in real time um sounds but, like he did right but then there's the guy obviously who came around and said there might even be a way to make this thing even more commercial and now we are up <laughs> to to 1986 and john bon jovi and i've never really known how to feel about john he's I'm sh I've never heard him talk about Bruce Springsteen. There's no freaking way he denies the influence. But even at that, he's, I want to say he's evolved beyond, but I don't really know if he's evolved beyond. Hair metal was big, and and I wouldn't have thought it could be done, that somebody could say, I'm going to take what Rat and Motley Crue are doing, and I'm going to take Bruce Springsteen songs and put teased hair and lipstick on it, and it'll be just as big, if not bigger, but that is precisely what John Bon Jovi did. Right, and I also think, and Bon Jovi did the impossible. They survived being so implanted in that hair metal world yeah. and had success in the 90s and had a top 10 song in 2001. You know, so they, they did the impossible. That just goes to straight up talent. Bon Jovi's become a classic rock band. We don't call them a hair metal band anymore. You yeah. know, they, they're, they're embryonic stages with definitely hair metal. I've heard John Bon Jovi talk about Bruce Springsteen. He means a lot to him. So there is a simpatico between them. Yeah. But I think there's a little bit of a rivalry too. I mean, you know, Jersey ain't big enough for the both of them. You know, Bon Jovi wants to claim Jersey for his own, you know. And when they do that metal, when they used to do the Meadowlands things, Bon Jovi was right there. He was. They were doing all eight or nine shows, a, 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 a residency too as well. So, you know, there was kind of a, a, a real fight there. A heavyweight battle for the for the king of Jersey, you know? I don't know that these two have ever been on stage together because p perhaps if they were both performing at Giant Stadium at the exact same time, like a hole might open in the earth in New yeah. Jersey. <laughs> the entire New Jersey turnpike might be swallowed into the Atlantic Ocean. It would just be over. It would implode. It would be too much stimulation for the uh, New Jerseyans to, to, to handle. But it's funny you say that there's got to be a picture of yeah. John Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen on stage. Oh, I'm sure and I'm not talking about, yeah, I, there's no way they haven't jammed together. But what's crazy is, Tully, mm -hmm. that you and I can't think of like five iconic pictures amazing uh, right now of them being together. No. Do you know what I mean? That's, what, that's what's crazy about it. You'd think there'd be like, yeah, arm in arm or the, the Bruce and Jovi tour. They just was never, they never, uh, I don't know. I don't believe that. Maybe there is something there. I don't believe there. that tour ever happened. I'm positive that if it was for some sort of charitable thing there's no way that they wouldn't have been there but I, i'm honestly not positive that for all these other shameless imitators that bruce has embraced that he feels quite that 
strongly about uh, about Bon Jovi because it, there was that element of I mean you could say there was a there's and you'd be right that there's a massive element of cheese to Bruce Springsteen and the Bruce Springsteen school but let's face it the cheese level went to a whole nother level when Bon Jovi did his thing I'm gonna play you a clip from my personal but you favorite. can't de- you can't deny you can't deny the lyrical style of Bon Jovi though. You know, Tina wasn't known on the die. I mean, it's, it's all stolen out of the Bruce Springsteen playbook. It's I don't say stolen. Let's say inspired by. So uh, definitely inspired by, you know, certainly Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, definitely well, a relation there. Here's my, uh, here's my personal favorite Bon Jovi song. It just so happens to be his Bruciest. I think this is the last track on uh, Slippery When Wet. Bruciest. <laughs> I'm terrible. My jersey runs so I mean, deep. Come I, on. But I still get goosebumps from that, too. I mean, the children's parade, this is my hometown. It's so shameless. So incredible. No, it's shameless. just part. It's, dude, embrace the nostalgia. Let it let it cover you in warmth and memories and glow. And it's okay to be a human being. It's is okay it, to be it, human. Is it nostalgia if I never stopped listening to it? Um, and yeah, Good point. <laughs> you know, it's weird when you hear it, when you hear it, uh, where where Bon Jovi and uh, Sambora went wah because mm-hmm. Sambora Springsteen never had a Sambora you know Sambora takes the vocals wah where I heard right there where where Springsteen would have put a like a he would have had a saxophone there mm-hmm. but Sambora is Bon Jovi's saxophone did you ever think about that Wow. Wow. I'm going deep here. Wow. He is the big man. Yeah. He's the big man. No. And, and, and you he's know, the big man. He's similar in the regard that the band and, and I forget. No, I think Clarence Clemens was still alive when I saw Bruce. It's great. They've got Clarence Clemens's nephew or something playing the role. And it's his, his son. I think it's his son. Is isn't it? it? Okay. But I think so. I don't show. He was the heart and soul of that thing. And Bruce was well aware that, I mean, it's a little icky because Bruce definitely thought he got some credibility from having like a black dude in his band. There's that's a pretty obvious thing. Be honest. But yeah. I think that even, even beyond that, Clarence Clemens, you not just as a black dude, but as Clarence Clemens had a presence that did give, you know, uh, Bruce that kind of uh, credibility. And I, I feel like uh, I'm not very interested in seeing Bon Jovi under any circumstances, but I have no interest in seeing Bon Jovi if Richie Sambora isn't there because it's the same thing. It's I'm not saying that there was a there's there's no credibility. You know, they're, they're not the most credible musical act of all time under any circumstances, but they're devoid of it without Richie Sambora. For some that guy's just he's not faking the hair metal cheese. That guy probably yeah. hangs out playing the talk box in his living room just for fun. He's, he really right, is that right. guy. <laughs> he never took like the Indian necklace off his neck, you know, <laughs> no. when he's playing guitar. It's still there. I mean, he's the real deal. Yeah. And you know, it's almost like, it's almost like, couldn't Mick Jagger carry on as the Rolling Stones if he wanted to without Keith? Yeah. Right. And would people come into the arena? Of course. Yeah, they'd be there. And I'm nowhere comparing... Bon Jovi and the Rolling Stones by making a metaphorical comparison uh, that that there's no way Bon Jovi is as strong without the playing, the finesse, the dynamic. Yeah. And also, I mean, just Sam Moore was synonymous with, with Bon Jovi, synonymous, you know? Yeah, right, right, right. So 
you would have thought that that would have been the end of people aping Bruce Springsteen because that's kind of the end of Bruce Springsteen's era and eras only last so long in music and Bruce 75 to 85 is about the Bruce Springsteen era it's a long era by the way it's 10 a, years is a long time 10 years is yeah is 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 it's not a run it is it is an era and obviously Bruce Springsteen's still going strong to this day but as like a guy who's one of the real hardcore you know main hit makers there's this whole other Bruce inspired renaissance that starts to happen about 20 years later. So we played Bon Jovi from 86 and there's a bunch of things we won't get to today that start around 06, but right in the middle of those, the lean years of people (laughs) stealing from Bruce in 96. What do you do? People will always look at you and see Bob Dylan's son. Well, you can't just sound like Bob Dylan, but that's right. Yeah. So the crazy That's thing, so right. the crazy thing about the Wallflowers, and I kind of like the Wallflowers. That second album, I worked in a restaurant, I was on all the time, and I got used to it. It goes goes down easy. I like a couple songs from it. I, you know, he did it. He 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 did the thing. It's when okay. you say second, you mean the popular album? The popular. They had yes. two. They had a record. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah. But then. As I say, Bruce does not seem offended by people doing his thing. He seems to embrace it. And that's why the last thing I'm going to play today is not the studio version of One Headlight by the Wallflowers. It's the time at some award show, Bruce Springsteen just kind of showed up and drank Jacob Dylan's milkshake. And like I said, like <laughs> what he should have done to John Cafferty and what he did do to Tom Waits, he said, thank you very much. I hadn't gotten to that one yet. I'll take that. Right. <laughs> just in case people forgot yeah. where this is coming from i don't care how many streets you knock off a song title yeah you know what i'm saying that's right it's still 10th avenue freeze out sixth avenue heartbreak you yeah know? <laughs> exactly exactly so this was uh, mtv music awards chris rock introduces this this is a big award show whenever this is from uh whatever this is from 1996 That's a great song, man. I, I, it's I, a really I, it's, good song. It's such a well-written song, so well-crafted. It's great. Yeah. So, so can I ask you a question? Uh, yeah. And this is sound. This might sound blasphemous. Is that Bruce singing the cover? Is he covering it? That is Bruce Springsteen a- appearing with the Wallflowers. Oh, did they? So, the Bruce sing the first part, and then and then Jacobs in the second. No, that's all Bruce. That's that, all Bruce. Jacob takes Jacob takes the first verse. Bruce takes the second verse, and then they're comboing on the choruses. Hey, you know, hey, and come. then I think, and then there's some kind of third thing or whatever where they're they're going back and forth line for line. But yeah, that's all. It's pretty all impressive Bruce. because a Jacob's on his game right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're right. He was drinking his milkshake and not his best behavior because I've heard Jacob go in and out of like you know maybe not singing as strong or you know he's really concentrating that melody and he's on point vocally and on key. And, uh, yeah. and and Bruce takes the high and the chorus, Come on, little, you know, and it, it is really amazing. And boy, you know what, dude, I would have never really 
made such an obvious Bruce comparison unless you pulled this one out. And it's 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 on the nose, as, as we said a few times today. It's on the nose, you know? I won't take credit for that. There's a very well-known sports writer, Bill Simmons, who pointed that of out. Course. and actually turned me on. Yeah, the sports guy turned me on to this particular clip. He had a funny thing, an aside in a, a column years ago when he still wrote, where he said Bruce should have an album called Songs I Should Have Sung. And, <laughs> and this was the thing that he led with. Songs I Should Have Sang and Did. Uh, yeah. But... but I wonder if Jacob Dylan was trying to write a Bruce Springsteen song. No, I don't think so. You think, think that, that was a default voice you went to? Because, like, I don't want to say a Bruce Springsteen vocal is easy. Mm-hmm. You know, but like, you know, I, mean, I, 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 I what? I guess my point is, what are Jacob Dylan's influences? So he said, I was reading up on that album a little bit. Bringing down the horse, I think, is what it was yeah, called. Exactly. Yeah that he thought he was doing a bunch of very early rock and roll and like pre-rock and roll kind of like roots of rock and roll stuff so much so that he went out of his way to work with very very of the moment producers how do you say the name is it um tom lord tom Tom lord algae tom lord algae yeah Right, he's he's a mixed a mixer to the stars, and he said, I guess he was really really hot at that moment, and he said, I wanted, I, I was aware that we were doing, in concept. Um, a very, very retro thing. And I wanted to make an album that could sell. So I knew we needed to work with people who would take our extremely retro thing and make it still pop for radio and bridge that difference. So I don't think he thought he was writing songs that could have come out in 1978. I think he thought he was writing songs that could have come out in 1966. Right. And that they were going to consider new when they came out then and certainly stand out from the grunge and all that stuff that was happening. The team, the T-Bone Burnett produce that record. I believe you're right. Yep. He did. He did. He did. And by the way, that's when you're swinging for the fences too, for that particular sound, you get T-Bone and Chris Lord algae. You're in good hands there. <laughs> and your dad's Bob Dylan. <laughs> he had a couple things going. For him. He had some things going for him. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But it's a good record, top to top to bottom. There's some good songs on there. It's it's uh, he's a great songwriter, top to bottom. That's on, that's that's one of the iconic records of the '90s, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. There's a song I really like that wasn't even a single on that album called "Laughing Out Loud." It's because it, this stuff is kind of it gets a, a little tediously mid to low tempo, and that's mm-hmm. the one kind of up tempo song. And I, I don't know. It's a, yeah, I, I don't have any anything anything bad to say about Jacob Dylan. Dylan, be, besides the obvious. They had, <laughs> they, had, they had four big hits off that record, so you know what I mean. That's, yeah. uh, his uh, Jacob Dylan's. Um, where am I going with this? Jacob, Jacob Dylan. Take is, your time. No, this this is crazy. Uh, my first girlfriend's uh, mom <laughs> married married the father of Jacob Dylan's wife. Now, there's a lot. There's a lot to say. I, I, that's why it took me a while Hold to put on. that together. My first girlfriend, yeah, my first yeah. girlfriend's mom married Jacob Dylan's wife's still together dad. So I thought it'd be very, uh, you know, very relevant for our discussion. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm losing my I'm mind. I'm just happy I know. What you're I know. I know. It's one of these. Uh, it's it's one of these days. Some days my brain works a little better than others. These days. I thought that We're was in the come, home stretch. I thought it was going to come out so much cleaner than that. Forgive me, guys. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> I enjoyed that. But with that, I think we should wrap this up before we get into the slew of next time on people who rip off Bruce Springsteen when the unthinkable happened and Bruce went from being what people with um, aspirations to be blue collar, workaday, relatable rock stars ripped off your John Cougar Mellicamps and stuff like that to when um, out of nowhere, the trendy alt indie set began appropriating Bruce Springsteen, which I never saw coming. And I will, spoiler alert, I was a little bitter about because as a guy who hadn't figured out how to get a music thing off the ground, all of a sudden I was like, wait, I could have just done that? Are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? And I'm from Jersey. My God, you know? I, mean, the I killer, throw those the songs the away, God damn it. The Killers made a Bruce Springsteen record yeah. for Christ's sake, you know. So uh, no, we're, 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 we'll we'll lead with the Killers. The best thing I can say about that Killers thing is that they beat all the other bands we're going to talk about to the Bruce Springsteen ripoff renaissance that began with uh, with the Samstown album, their second album. But for now, we've already been talking for far too long. I'm going to uh, to let you go. You're a gentleman, and uh, thank you as always for your time. Your Mark underscore mcgrath on twitter and you are at the real mark mcgrath on instagram if memory serves that's where people can start their journey into all things mark mcgrath that's exactly right and i love hearing from you guys uh and what you guys think about music and, and i really enjoy i know tully feels the same so please reach out i mean i love to hear from you guys and hear what you think tell me the mistakes i made happy to hear them happy to be corrected so it's always fun hearing from you guys thanks for having me tully as always yep talk to you next time all right brother <laughs>